Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, the very last two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We come to the end of Timothy, 1 Timothy that is. This will be our 19th sermon in this book together. So hopefully you've been here for most of them. If not, you can go back and listen to them. They're out there somewhere on the web. But Paul's written this letter now to Timothy. As we know, he's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He's instructed Timothy on church leadership, on church structure. He's charged Timothy to stand up to the false teachers of the day and the struggles that the church is facing because of them. But he's also told Timothy to remain faithful to the gospel. He said this to keep this within the church, but also he's told this to Timothy himself to make sure you are doing what the gospel calls you to do, which is to trust in Christ, to remain in Christ, to hold on to Christ. And he's also told Timothy to be faithful to preach the gospel. Today, as we get to the end of the letter, Paul stays true to himself. He stays true to what he's been telling Timothy all this time. And he finishes, once again, urging Timothy and even pleading with Timothy to keep true to this gospel message. Now, Paul has just told Timothy uh, before, if you were here last week, you would have heard that, that uh, there are going to be those in the church who are rich and to talk to them and to tell them this is how you are to handle your money. He never said it was sinful to be rich, but he said if you are rich, you find yourself in that position. He said to do good works and to be generous. This is what he has declared to them to do. I don't think it's by accident that now Paul closes by telling Timothy to guard the gospel well. And the reason I say that is I think what Paul's doing here is he's comparing the riches of the rich with the riches of the faithful, of those who've been called in Christ, those who are believers, who are Christians. And as I said a little bit this morning uh, after the baptisms, I think that if we as Christians, including myself, I can struggle with this also, but if we as Christians would really, truly grasp what we have in Christ, all these other things would so fade away in our life. There would be so many anxieties gone because, let's face it, a lot of our anxieties, a lot of our hurts and our depression aren't gospel-centered, they're worldly-centered. They're because of the struggles that we face in this world. And for most of us, it's not struggles of, I don't know if I'm going to eat, but our anxiety is, what are we going to eat? Well, what is it going to be? Is it going to be good or is it not going to be good? Right? And we, we struggle with these types of of issues that can be called worldly. And so I think, I hope that this morning as we look at these last two verses, we will once again, or maybe for the first time, hear the gospel, to see the gospel, and to understand truly what God has given us in this gospel message. What we have in Christ. Because I understand how hard that can be. Because simply said, as we live out in this world, we see the riches that this world has to offer, and we see what we can do with those riches, and we like that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't like that. Again, it's not wrong to be rich. 
It's not wrong to enjoy the things of the world. In fact, Paul told that to Timothy in the verses just prior to what we're going to read here in a moment. He said it's okay to enjoy the things of this world. But when we see those things, we can be drawn to them to where that is where our hope lies. And as you'll see, Paul encourages Timothy here to make sure the church stays focused on its task and on what God has given us, that being the gospel. So follow along with me in these last two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Well, just a few things here that Paul tells Timothy. Number one, he says there at the very start to guard the deposit. Now, there is some question as to what this is. What is the deposit that Paul's talking about? Some say that maybe what Paul's telling Timothy is to guard his calling because he's talked about Timothy's calling before, told him to remember his calling as well. Others say that maybe what he's telling Timothy particularly is to guard his spiritual life, his walk with the Lord, which we know he's done that as well when he told Timothy to to be holy and to live a holy life and to be kind and to be patient. But others say, and this is what I believe is being used here, is that what Paul's talking about specifically is the gospel message. The message that Paul has continually told Timothy uh, to share. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is, this is why I think this is what Paul's talking about. I think it'll be on the screen for you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, so the next book, right off the bat, Paul uses some similar language here, but he makes it very particular because in verses 13 and 14 he says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, it's obvious there that what Paul's talking about is the gospel. He says, the words that I have given to you, those things that I have instructed you, I've, I've shared these things with you, and I've entrusted you with them to now go and to tell others these words. And so this is what Paul is telling Timothy to guard. It's, it's the gospel. And so it's important for us to understand here exactly, I think, what the gospel is and what Paul means by this. There's a commentary that I've been using in this series written by George Knight. And in it, that word guard there, he has a definition of what it means. And I want you to, I want you to hear it because I think it's helpful. He says this word, it was used in the ancient world of the high obligation of having entrust another person's treasured possession, of keeping it safe, and of returning it as it was. This really is quite the task then that's been given to the church. What Paul is saying is, Timothy, as the pastor of this church, you've been given the gospel message. It is entrusted to you to give it back exactly how it was given to you. Don't change it. Don't, don't mess with it. This is what you are to say. This is what you are to be doing. Imagine it this way. This is what I kind of thought of when I was, when I was reading this. Imagine if somebody was very wealthy and they had a painting, a very famous painting. And one day they brought it to your house. And they said, here, I'm, I'm giving you this painting. I'm entrusting it to you. And I'll come back. And when I come back, I want you to give it back to me. Now, my guess is that you would take care of it. You would put it somewhere in the house where it wouldn't be uh, disturbed. So, for example, if your basement floods kind of regularly, which is quite annoying, isn't it? You aren't going to put it on the basement floor. Because you don't want it to get ruined. Even though it's not your possession, 
You don't want it to get ruined. And so you're going to take great care maybe to put it in a closet or to, I don't know, you'll, you'll think of something. But I can tell you what you won't do. You won't look at it one day and you won't say, you know what, this needs to be modernized. I think I could do it with a Sharpie. I think if you gave me a paintbrush and some paint, I could take this and I could make it look better. I don't think this image today is very appealing to people. And so what I could do, if you give me the right tools, I could take this painting and I could make it appealing to a lot more people. That way they will appreciate the artwork that we have here. You know, as I say that, that's ridiculous. That would be a ridiculous thing to do because you're messing up the art. I'm not good at painting or drawing, so I would really mess it up. But even somebody who was good at it, we would say, no, no, you don't, you don't touch this. This is, a, this is a classic. It's perfect just as it is. And, and someone might say, well, there's imperfections in it. Couldn't you, couldn't you button up the imperfections and that would make it look better? Say, you would say, no, the imperfections is what, what we like about it. Right? It's what shows it's an original. Don't touch it. That's what Paul's telling the church to do with the gospel. I'm entrusting this to you, Timothy, and to the church of Ephesus. The words I've given to you and spoken to you, this is the gospel message. Now go and share this to each other regularly. When you have opportunity, share it with the world outside. Let them know the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's been entrusted to you. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We don't modernize it. We don't, we don't fancy it up. Don't, don't do that, Timothy, because when you do that, you've perverted the gospel. If you add to it, you've messed it up. If you, if you take something from it, guess what? You've messed it up. You, you can't touch it. It's, it's perfect in the form that you've been given it. So don't play with it. That's the same charge that we have been given in our church today. We've been entrusted with the gospel message. And it is our job as the church, not the people outside of there. You see, as the church, we like to look at people outside the walls and say, oh, you sinners, hideous people. You're messing up the church. You're doing all these things. Oh, they don't know any better. Uh, the people who are not Christians, they don't know the gospel. They haven't been uh, dead to themselves and risen in new life in Christ. That hasn't happened in their life. And so to look at them and to say, it's your fault that the gospel is being stained is ridiculous. There's only one group of people we can look at because the gospel is stained, and it's us church people. And we have to be very careful that we protect it and that we share it how it has been given to us. Think about the fact that we have been charged to hand the gospel to the next generation. And then they'll be charged to do the same thing. And then they'll be charged to do the same thing. And for some 2,000 years, that's exactly how it's gone. I was thinking about this this week. 200 some odd kids in here running around and acting crazy, you know, and all that stuff. I, I avoid most of it the best I can. But I found it to be pretty easy to get kids to participate in things if you have some fun. It's pretty easy to do. If you turn the lights off and put black lights up like we did on the last day and Pastor Scott made me make bubbles that were supposed to shine, which they didn't. It just made my hands shine a lot in the black light. But the kids loved it. 
They went crazy. With VBS, you don't have to advertise because after Monday, those kids go and they tell their friends and all of a sudden their friends come. Why? Because they've, they've had fun. They've, they've had a blast. That's good. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a, an appropriate thing to do, but it's not an appropriate thing to do if we as a church don't actually give them the one thing we have to give them, and that's the gospel. Some might say, yeah, but that might turn them away. Don't you want to don't you want to cast a really wide net and get a lot of people? Just and maybe maybe you got to dumb it down a little bit. Maybe maybe you got to tweak some things because you don't want to hurt people's feelings. You don't you don't want to say certain things that they might go home and now their parents aren't going to let them come back. So maybe we play the long game here and just kind of kind of skirt tail some of these topics. See, there's a problem there, isn't it? What are we doing? We're changing the painting. We're changing it to culture to say, we want them to like this, so, so here it is. And so we just say things like, God is love. We just say things like, God loves you. Right? We, we never get down to the point to say, you have a problem in your life and it's sin, it's you. We never ask the kids the question, have ever, any of you ever lied before? You know, and they all, oh. well, because you lied that means you've rebelled against God. That's why Jesus had to come and die, because of, because of your sin. That's a, that's a hard thing to look in a cute little kid's eyes and say at times. But that's all we have. It's easy to say it to some kids, because they're, they're bad. <laughs> Others, it can be difficult. But that's what Paul's getting at with Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you've been entrusted with the gospel, and if you don't do your job... The next generation will not have it. The next generation will not, will not know it. And we know the slippery slope that that can have. You can see how you can let a little thing slide and a little thing slide, and the next thing you know, all this stuff that wasn't okay years ago is now okay, right? I'm not even talking about gospel issues. Certain words that are said, certain actions that are done. Commonplace today, 30 years ago, not commonplace. Well, what is that? It's what the next generation was kind of taught is okay. And so they're going to push the bounds, and then the next generation is going to push the bounds. And so that's why we have to be careful not to push the bounds, to stay true to the gospel so that we can give it to the next generation and they can pass it on as well. And so the question that needs to be answered then is what is the gospel? What is this message that we share? Well, I'm going to do it very quickly. And I hope that you will listen. For some of you, this could change your life. For some of you, I've been praying this week that God would open your eyes to the gospel when I share this part right here. That for the first time you will see, this is you. This is your story. Christ came for you because of your sin. So I hope that maybe you'll realize this. For others, I hope that it reminds you of who you are in Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that God created everything, and he created everything perfect. And he had a garden, and in the garden he placed Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve were in the garden, but Adam and Eve did something they shouldn't do. God had gave them one rule, one law, said do not eat of this tree, and they did it. They ate of this tree. Now they were deceived by a serpent, but they still ate of it, and they were guilty. So as a result, they hid from God because of their sin. They knew that they needed to do that. God came in the garden, was looking for them, and then... It came out that they had sinned, that they had fallen short of what God had established for them. 
And so as we read the Bible, we see that because of that, there are curses on the land, that there are struggles, that there are toils, that life is hard and difficult. And it's not because that's how God created it. It's because sin caused that. When sin entered the world, struggle came into place. Now, ever since then, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all humans sin. We sin. We, we fall short. It, it's part of our life. And the Bible tells us that what we're doing is we're actually rebelling against God. And it becomes really clear as you continue into the Old Testament because you see that God ends up choosing a people. And when he chooses these people, Israel, he gives them a law. And when you read the law, you realize rather quickly, Pooh, I can't do the law. Even the Ten Commandments, which most people have heard of even if they're not in church, if you go through the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your strength, we're all out already. Because as I said, we fall into the worldly pleasures at time, don't we? And we love those things more than God. And so even in the first commandment, we see how we fall short. And so as we look at our own life, we see that we are guilty. Well, God had established with Israel a way for their guilt to be forgiven, and it was with the sacrificial system. Things needed to die. Even though it was the people who should have died, God made a different way for that to happen. It was through animals. It was through offerings. It was through some of those things. And so you can read about that in the Old Testament. Well, the problem with that system is you were never really fully covered all the time because you would do the sacrifice and then you'd go home and sin again. <laughs> it needed to be done again and again and again and again. And so even Israel would have a time in the year when they would ask for forgiveness of all sins for all the people. And in God's grace, he kept doing that for them. But that was pointing to something, and it was pointing, the Bible tells us, to God's son, Jesus, who would come. And so what we learn about Jesus is, the, in John, it tells us the word became flesh. We, we see in the Gospels that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man, and there was a reason for that. Because being fully man, what Jesus did is he did what you and I cannot do. He lived a perfect life, no sin. No sin at all. There was, there was no sin in him whatsoever. Yet, in the midst of his perfect life, there came a point where everybody was angry with him and they wanted him dead because he was saying he was the Son of God. And they didn't like that. And so the re religious authority and the people around did whatever they could to kill him. And so we see in Scripture that Jesus eventually was crucified he was hung on a cross, and he died, and after his death, he was buried in a tomb, where he was for three days, the Bible tells us. But the good news of the story is he didn't stay in the tomb. You see, after three days, he rose again. And the reason that he rose again was that the only reason somebody should die, the Bible tells us, is because of sin. Sin equals death. He had no sin. Therefore, he he can't die. The grave can't hold him because he was perfect in his humanity. And so he rose again. And the Bible tells us a little later, days later, he would ascend on high to where he sits at the right hand of the Father today. Now this is the part of the gospel you need to understand. Because as you continue to read your Bible and you get out into the gospels and you start to get into some of Paul's writings and Peter's writings and some more of John's, what we learn is we learn that that death that Jesus took on the cross was the death that you deserve. Just like that animal that, who would have their throat slit and blood spilt, and the family would say, this is for our sin, and it was accepted. That's why Jesus died, was for your sin. 
And the good news is, is that the Bible also tells us that Jesus died once and for all. It's not, it's not something that we look to for him to come again and die again because too much sin has happened. It's not something that you have to re-up on a regular basis. No, the Bible tells us that Christ knew exactly what he was doing. He came and he died for the ungodly, you, me, right in my mess, right in my, right in my sin. He, he died for me, and if I, because of God's grace would believe in faith that Jesus paid the price for me. The Bible tells me that I'll be forgiven of my sin, that I'll be a child of God, that he saves me, that he adopts me into his family, and that he promises for me an inheritance that nobody else could give me. You see, he he solved my problem of sin, where I couldn't look at him, I couldn't be in, in relationship with him. Now, I'm in perfect relationship with him. Not because I'm a pastor, not because I read my Bible, not because I try to do good things. I'm in perfect relationship with God the Father because of Jesus the Son. That's the only reason. I have no other reason. I, I had the privilege of kind of sharing that. I don't want to share too much with, but, and talking with Christy a little bit about her baptism. She struggled with that some of like, I had sin in my life, and I just felt shouldn't get baptized because of that. And I meant this because this is biblical. I had the privilege to look at her and say, God came because of your sin. You think you got to wash yourself before you get in that baptistry? That's not what this is about. He has washed you. He has given you everything. If, if you're going to wait if you're going to wait to get in that baptistry until you've done everything right and you think you got yourself set, guess what? We never have to fill that thing because you can't do it. I can't. I can't do it. And so the beauty of the gospel is that God has done everything for us through his son, Jesus. And he offers it to us to have Jesus' life, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection, be ours. And it is a gift of God that we do not deserve, but it is a gift of God that he offers even today. To you, lost sinner, this gospel message that I just shared, this is, this is our story. This is my story, personally. And this is the message that we as the church have been called to guard, nothing else but this. And again, I don't say it as if there's else out there to guard. We have everything in the gospel. And we've been entrusted with it to share it. And we need to make sure that we are doing it right, that we are sharing it right, that we are teaching it to each other right, that we are staying true to the Bible. And as I said, not adding anything to it, not taking anything away. Now, there are some dangers in this, and Paul shares this with Timothy after that. He says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And he gives a warning Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul knew what it was like to be faced with this babble that he's talking about. Sometimes it comes from outside, and it's easy to tell when lies come from the outside. It's easy. But the problem is, is when it comes from inside. And as I said, Paul knew this. Paul faced this. He faced this in Uh, Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10, I want to read it for you. Again, it should be on the screen. You can look at it up there or turn in your Bibles. That'd be fine. 
But in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10, this is Paul dealing with Babel. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Paul's going out into these foreign uh, countries, and he's sharing the gospel with Gentiles. He's telling them about Jesus, and there was a problem. Some church people didn't like what was being said. Babel. So they started to come into these churches, and they were going into the church that was in Galatia, and they were saying, yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus has done that, but... You also need to be circumcised. You also need to abstain from some certain foods. There are laws of Moses that you must still keep if you are really going to be a follower of Christ. And it is these people who Paul was standing up against saying, you are trying to make us slaves again. We are free in Christ. There is freedom in the gospel. Stop taking it away from us. This is Babel. This is what Paul is warning Timothy of. He's saying, be careful. In this context, in in Galatians, it was the Judaizers. In Timothy's context, it probably was some Judaizers, some people like that, but also there were some thoughts of the day creeping in, some Gnosticism. Today, we still know of Judaizers who try to rob Christians of their freedom in Christ. Sadly, we have churches who try to add to the gospel. Say, yes, Jesus saved you, but... You must hold on to it. You must hold on to it. And if you don't, you'll let it go and then you're, you're lost again. That is an addition to Scripture. We don't see that in the Bible. It is God who saves. Not us. I can't hold it for a second. He holds me. I don't hold Him. Yes, I want to serve Him and I want to honor Him. But my service and my honoring Him isn't what holds me to Him. He holds me to himself. Some people try to take things away from the gospel. As I mentioned before, you can have a church service where we talk about love and we talk about freedom, but we never deal with what Christ died for, which was sin. We start to wipe sin away. We start to say everything is okay. We, we do our best to hide sin under the bridge. And, and to some churches now, they really just have gotten rid of it altogether. Oh, we know the Bible doesn't speak of that. Jesus died for our sin, and Paul would say, why would we go back on sinning? No, we don't do that. We try not to sin. We trust in the Holy Spirit and His work to work through us. You see, we must guard against this. We must take a stand against these things. There is another danger that infiltrates the church at times, and I want to be careful with this because it can go in a lot of directions, or I don't want it to go, but... Another danger is we start to treat the Bible as a code book or a treasure hunt to find the quote-unquote 
real meaning of everything. Have you ever met somebody like that? Now listen, I face these people quite often. They like to ask me questions. And it's often pretty uncomfortable. I don't know their code. I don't know what they're talking about often. And I don't know how to answer them well. And I can see the frustration on their face and the thoughts of, you must not really like your Bible like I do. Oftentimes this comes from people, and again, I bet you know people like this. I can tend to be this way myself, who need to know everything. Are you like that? You just need to know everything, and you struggle when you don't know everything? Again, I said, like I said, I can be that way. But they, they feel that they, they need to know everything, and so what they use their Bible for is like some tool to try to know everything. And so they, they start to nitpick everything, and the problem is when they spend four hours on one word, and they want to know it in the Greek and the Latin and how they would have used it and all these things. Just, just one word, just maybe one off-topic word. Is they can start to miss the point of all of it. They start to evangelize, not the gospel anymore. They start to evangelize and share with people these little hidden gems that they think they found in there. These little nuggets that they pulled that nobody talks about what it really means in this verse. And again, my answer to them normally is, it means it. You, you need to stop looking at that. And you need to start asking the question, is what is the broad picture of being shared here? What, what really is God trying to get across? You see, you see they're, they're so close and so intense that they're missing the glory of the gospel message and what is there. The gospel's never really being shared. One of my favorite people, I talk about him quite often, so you should know this by now, is Alistair Begg. And ever since I've been listening to him, he says the same thing almost all the time. In most of his messages, he says this saying. He says, keep the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. And that has just resonated with me. Because again, <laughs> I've had this. Well, Leviticus 4.3 says this, and I'm like, I don't know what Leviticus 4.3 says. But they're trying to tell me, and, and, it, and when I correlate that to this, it, it brings me to Amos. And then when I think about it with this, it, it brings me to Luke. And then I bounce back to Genesis in here. And what do you think about that, Pastor? And I'm like, I don't have any thoughts about that whatsoever. But I would like to ask you this. Do you know the gospel? And when is the last time you shared it with somebody? When's the last time your heart actually broke for somebody who was lost and dying and going to hell? Has it been lately? Probably not. Probably not, because you're searching for all of these nuggets. Now, again, I said I don't want to go in a bad way. It's good to study your Bible. Don't get me wrong. It's good to know what certain words mean. I've done it myself with this, of what does guard mean? And so I looked that up. But you see, we can get lost in all of this stuff and forget what Paul tells Timothy here is, you've been entrusted with the gospel. Don't get lost in the Babel. Don't get lost in the irreverent things. And we have to be careful with that. People like me who want to know everything, we've got to be careful with that. Making sure we're asking the right questions. Making sure we're looking at the right things. See, a lot of times, you and I, what we want is we want a PhD answer. But we still find ourselves in second grade. And a PhD answer is just going to mess us up. It's just going to confuse us. It's like some of you guys, and I have family members who do this. I'm not going to say who they are. They know exactly who they are. But when they get a headache, they Google, what does a headache mean? And it means you have cancer and you're going to die. That's what it means. And they start to look up the symptoms, and it's like, listen, 
you are not a doctor. And neither is Google. Stop looking at that and go to a doctor. See, they don't have the degree to know everything that is going on. And a lot of times we treat our Bibles that way. We hear the gospel message. God uses it in our life to draw us closer to him and he saves us by his great grace. And we love it. But then a year goes by and two years go by and we start to say things like, I want more. Ooh, problem. That's a problem. If we find ourselves as Christians saying, God, I want more than the gospel, give me more, you are going down a very bad road. The gospel is the greatest thing we could ever have. There's no meat beyond the gospel message. And if we start thinking there is, we have to be careful, knowing that we are starting to go astray. I think as a church, we have to be careful. If we need to stay elementary, let us do it as long as we are guarding the gospel and avoiding the babble. Have you ever had a kid, maybe it was your child or your grandchild, and they ask you a fantastically deep question about the Bible? There's, you, you know, you have, you have two thoughts in that moment. One is, I don't even know that answer, maybe, like, whoa. But the other is, I can't really give you that answer because there's so much you don't know yet about the gospel, about the Bible. It's really going to take time to get you to, under, to understand this fully. I remember my kids asking me questions about the Trinity, and it's like, okay, we can talk about this, but you still need to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. You, there's other things that are, at this moment, very important for you to know before we can dive into this. This is what I'm talking about. Let's remember the point. Let's remember the point of the gospel message and let's make sure that we, that we stick true to it. The other example I thought of, and this will resonate with some of, some of you, I do like to golf even though I don't get to golf very much. <clears throat> and I love going golfing with other people because most of them stink. They're not very good at it. But you look at them and they have, they have very nice clubs and they like to talk very technically about their swing. And they'll look, you know, and they're like, you know, on this hole, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a nice little fade in there. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, maybe you should just try to hit the ball. I've seen you swing and miss three times. And you're talking about a fade? Or they start to ask you like a, a question. It's like, what am I doing wrong? Watch me swing and tell me what I'm doing wrong. And you're like, you're doing everything wrong. I don't, you're not doing anything right, I don't think. But they just want to know they want to know the technical, as if, as if there's one thing in golf, if there's just one little tweak they could do of like twist their foot a little bit or knock their head back up this way or straighten their wrist. Like that, all of a sudden, they're going to be on TV playing golf. Golf doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And sometimes I think we as Christians get lost in that with our Bible. If maybe I could just find some little nugget... Maybe there's just something deep down in the Hebrew of this word that I can plaster on my wall and I won't look at that stuff on the computer anymore. That's what's going to make the difference. You know, or if I could just get down deep into here, all of a sudden, my sin will be gone. And I won't struggle with this anymore. It's not there. It's not there. See, that's when we start to twist the gospel. What we have in the gospel is the answer. Christ has died for you in your place. You say, what must I do? 
By faith, you must trust in his grace. By faith, you must trust in his son for the forgiveness of your sins. And as Christians, that's what we do always. Every day, we should wake up saying, God, once again, help me to believe the gospel. Help me to trust in Jesus, my Savior, for the forgiveness of my sins. Help me not to waver to the left or to the right. Help me not to trust in myself or in my parents or in whatever it might be. God, help me to trust only in Christ and in his accomplished works. Because if I go to the side of that, I'm going to fall apart. And that's how Paul ends here. This is a saying that he says at, all, at the end of all the pastoral epistles. It's a common saying, and it's one that we could brush past, but it's one worth looking at quickly. He ends the letter by saying, grace be with you. Again, for us, this is something we could just push to the side. It's something that we hear. We sing about songs about grace. But what, but what Paul is saying here, and, and George Knight brought this out as well, when we define grace, a lot of times the way I've heard people define grace is it's God's unmerited favor. Have you heard it defined that way? And I think that is true, but I think that's only part of the definition. He says it's God's unmerited favor, strengthening and enabling his people. See, with this definition, grace is something I need every second and every moment of my life. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a, well, back when I was seven, God gave me grace, and he, he poured it out on me, boom, however he does that, and Tim is now saved, and I no longer need grace because grace is in my life. No. What Paul is saying here is he's saying grace be with you, and the understanding is this. It's because you need it every second. And the moment you start to fade away from your need from grace, you need it more and more and more. You get yourself into a whole web of troubles. Every day I need God to strengthen me to avoid sin. Every day I need God's strength to live faithfully for him according to what he calls me to do. Every day I need God's grace so that I can somehow, in some way, in my piddly little life, honor him the best I possibly can. But I, I can only do that with his grace in my life every moment. I cannot do it on my own. And when I try to do it on my own, I just, I just mess it up and I start to mess the whole gospel message up. I clutter it up. And so it's true. When we sing that song that we sing, I need thee every hour. That's true. I need him every hour, every moment, every second. And so Paul is reminding Timothy here of the good news that we have in the gospel message and that Timothy, this young pastor, needs to be reminded of as he struggles in this city of Ephesus. He says, Timothy, grace be with you. And you can almost think him saying, and don't forget it. Grace be with you, Timothy. You see, as a child of God this morning, if that's you, if you know you've been saved by grace and you've, you've trusted in Jesus by faith, I want to remind you this morning, the great good news of the gospel is that God is with you every hour. God's with you in those moments of sin that are embarrassing to you. You think about it right now and you cringe because you think maybe the people can see your thoughts. <laughs> 
And you think how embarrassing it would be if everybody around me knew this about me. God's grace is with you even in that sin. And when he saved you, he knew this about you. And yet he still loves you. He still loves you so much that he would let Jesus come and die in your place. This is the good news of the gospel. And compared to the riches of the world, this towers over it all. Because when Christ returns or when we pass away and we take no more breath, as Paul said earlier, no amount of money I have, no amount of good works that I have done, nothing can I lay at the feet of God the Father to say, this is my entry pass. This is what makes me right before you. There's, there's nothing I can do. I can't say, well, every Sunday I raise my hands when we sing. Doesn't that do something? That's better than the person who didn't even sing. It doesn't mean a thing. Well, what about all the offering I gave? What about all the kind things I did for my neighbor? What about, I, I did all this stuff, and I'm laying it to you. You tell me this, this doesn't buy anything? It doesn't buy anything. The Bible tells us all of our good works apart from Christ filthy rags. They mean nothing. On that day of judgment when we stand before God the Father, all we have as Christians is Christ. But once again, I don't say that as saying, oh, this is all I got. It's all we can have. And it's all we need. God has done for us what we could not. And when we gather here on Sunday mornings to sing and to worship, we are singing and worshiping him because of what he has done for us. Not to earn favor, not to earn some sort of standing. We worship him because he has put us right next to him all on his own. And we love him and we praise him for it. As I said this morning, earlier, I, I'm sure there are some of you today, you, you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you've never really heard the gospel and today's the first time and Maybe it sounds pretty good to you. If that's the case, I, I hope that you'll trust in Jesus. Or talk to me, I'd love to talk to you about it. Or, or maybe as you heard me talk about the gospel, maybe what pricked your heart a little bit was, you know, I've been trying to save myself, I think. I'm very busy, I've been doing a lot, and I've been basing how much God likes me on those things that I do. And I hope that you've seen in the gospel message, that is not true. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you, and you cannot do anything to attain that. He has done it in your place. And I hope that this morning, maybe for the first time, you'll stop trying to achieve on your own, and you'll rest in the accomplished works of Jesus, your Savior. What a gift God has given us. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. We want to respond to the word of God. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. We'll sing a song to close after I pray here. God, we thank you for your word. God, help us here at this church uh, to guard the good deposit well. God, there is so much temptation to appeal to the world through worldly means as churches. I feel that all the time. But God, help us to be very careful. Help us to guard the gospel that you have given us in your word, not to add to it, not to take away from it, but to understand that it is the hope of the world. God, we thank you that you've loved us 
We thank you for Jesus, that he would come, that he would live the perfect life, that he would die the death that I deserved. He'd be buried in the grave that I should have been buried in, but he would conquer that grave and rise again. And God, because of your great grace, you impart that onto us. You give us that. So God, we thank you for that. Help us to praise you as we sing this song. And as I said, God, help us to respond to your word how we should, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.